This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was great. Okay. okay. Coming to you live from a clinic on the outskirts of Paris, where I'm busy whipping my dogs into a frenzy, I'm Eric Winnick, and you are hereby invited to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. And taking care of said dogs, because they're the only ones I can relate to, I'm Bradford Lorick. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. We call this podcast Scare You because tonight, two of us are going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And these folks will be experiencing a horror film they haven't seen yet. As assigned by a true horror aficionado, you, sir. Now joining us tonight to discuss the 1984 song Eyes Without a Face by Billy Idol is the one and only... Eric, 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 Eric. Uh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you here, but we're actually here to discuss the 1960 film Les Yeux Sans Visage, also known as Eyes Without a Face. Well, excuse me. Joining us tonight, all the way from the kitchen of hell, New York City, is the one and only Liz de Gregorio. Welcome to Scare You. Glad to be here. Hi. So Liz is a poet, writer, and editor. Her work has appeared in Electric Literature, Lucky Jefferson, Anomaly, Catapult, Dread Central, Bust, Ghouls Magazine, Oi Drum Magazine, and many other publications. She's also performed at Providence's Dory Award-winning storytelling series, Stranger Stories. So, hey, how are you, Liz? And what are you up to these days? I'm doing good. Thank you. Um, I'd say these days I'm a senior contributor at Ghouls Magazine, which is a horror uh, website which examines horror from a female and non-binary perspective. I'm also currently working on a poetry manuscript as well as a creative nonfiction piece about uh, women's bodies as a site of pain and fear in both pop culture and real life. 
It's very appropriate for this evening, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Very Um, appropriate. Indeed. Uh, So, Liz, uh, now the first thing we like to ask our guests is, what is your history with the horror genre, and what is your favorite horror film? Uh, I'd say my history started very young, when I was three years old. Um, I was watching TV with my father, who thought that we could watch The Shining together, and I'd be just fine with it, because I, quote, wouldn't know what was happening, unquote. (laughs) Um, so then I had a pretty, pretty lifelong fear of Jack Nicholson. Um, but I still was intrigued by horror from a very young age and just would, you know, watch as many movies as I could on the sly. And it just kind of grew and grew into more, uh, international horror as well. And now, um, very happy to be able to write for ghouls and kind of explore it from that point of view as well. And if you had to name a favorite and you could do two or three, what would what would you say are your favorite horror films? I think I'll have to do two for this one. I'd have to do mm-hmm. the original Suspiria, which I also saw probably too young, um, but I love. <laughs> I've watched so many times. Um, there's even a moment in the movie we're about to discuss tonight that sort of reminded me of Suspiria. And my other would be Ginger Snaps, which is, I feel like, a Canadian uh, cult classic of horror. Bradford, do you also have a lifelong fear of Jack Nicholson? I mean, yeah, and it's only getting worse and worse. <laughs> and and what um, age did you see the? I was going to say what you probably saw The Shining at a very young age, didn't you? Well, you know, it's funny. I did, uh, and yeah. I remember very distinctly hearing the story of the film The Shining from my great uncle when I was a very little kid. Um, but I cut my teeth very young as well, Liz. Um, my first exposure was the, um, the the television broadcast premiere of Friday the 13th, the OG, um, which was probably in 1981. Uh, I was about three. So I've been watching these kinds of things for a very long time, too. So welcome to the club, Liz DiGregorio. I have to say, Liz, what what made you want to write about horror? I mean, what um, of all the things in the world that you could write about? Was it just your love of of the films or what made you want to write about about this subject? I think it is because I love the movie so much and I've gotten so much out of them. And I by writing about them, I kind of wanted to open other people's eyes to them and say, you know, even if you don't think you like horror, maybe you do. Like maybe you need to explore what kind of horror films you do like and kind of appreciate them in different ways and just get to know them. And I just wanted to bring the enjoyment that I had to other people. And your latest piece sounds so interesting. Um, Are there particular films that you're looking into or are going to focus on? I think one of the probably well-known ones, Rosemary's Baby, is what I'm going to think about for this one. Um, There are a couple others that I'm not thinking of right now. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, <laughs> you know, he, here at Scare You, we um, we love ourselves, we love us some feminist horror, and we've kind of essayed a handful of, um, I think, really great films that could be described as feminist. C- can you rattle off a couple of your favorite feminist horror films? Ooh, I would say May is one of my fa- my all-time favorites and also one of my favorite feminist horror movies also a very good queer horror movie i'd say also i i do feel even though it's i feel like it's a complicated film but i feel like the haunting is one the original the haunting Mm -hmm. through a certain gaze if you look at it that way and the female characters and kind of the underlying tones of the the film um as well as the book it was based on so i think those are some of the ones that spring to mind 
Lawrence! No Thank you, Kay Kaiser. Hey, uh, Mr. Winnick, will you give us one of your patented, brief, spoiler-free synopses of Les Yeux Sans Visage? Uh, you mean Eyes Without a Face? Sure, uh, I would be delighted to. Um, Maurice, yes, Maurice, cue up the music, please. Somewhere on the outskirts of Paris, a woman, Louise, is driving alone at night. There's a body in the back seat of her car. The body's face is obscured and it's slumped over, lifeless. Indeed, the body is a corpse, and Louise is soon dragging it into the Seine. Meanwhile, after giving a speech about the perils and pleasures of skin grafts, a doctor, Genessier, is called to the morgue to identify a body. Is it that of his missing daughter? So he claims. On his way out, Genessier is accosted by a man, Tessot, who asks if the body is that of his missing daughter, Simone. Genessier tells him no, it's not, and that's that. But back at the doctor's home slash clinic, indeed, is his daughter, Christiane, alive and well, but hiding behind a white mask that obscures a badly scarred face, the result of a recent car accident. The police, meanwhile, are suspicious. Who is the body in the river? And why is it missing its face? And why does it appear someone surgically removed said face with a scalpel? Louise, meanwhile, has located and lured a new facial donor slash candidate slash victim back to the clinic, a victim who's soon undergoing a gruesome surgery that may or may not spell freedom, as it were, for poor, faceless Christiane Genessier. More like eyes without a brain, am I right, Liz? (laughs) (sighs) All right, so uh, why don't we tell everybody who was responsible for the making of this film? Yes, uh, this film was directed by Georges Franjou, who our Hollywood bureau chief IMDB notes is a rather important figure in the history of French cinema, not just for his films, but for being the co-founder of the uh, Cinémathèque Française in uh, 1937, which is France's most famous and important film archive. Franjou worked primarily as a film archivist until 1949, when he made his directorial debut with the slaughterhouse documentary Blood of the Beasts. His feature films include 1959's Head Against the Wall, which established his striking visual style that owed much to German expressionism, followed by Eyes Without a Face, Judex, and the 1965 Jean Cocteau adaptation, Thomas the Imposter. Uh, Eyes Without a Face is adapted from the 1959 novel by Jean Redon. Uh, Bear with me, my French is bad. There are a lot of names here, but the adaptation is credited to four writers, uh, Redon himself, Claude Sauté, and the team of Pierre Boyeux, and Thomas Narsajac, with dialogue by one Pierre Gascar. I'm going to really lean into all of these just to make you look really bad. Please please don't. (laughs) The film features Pierre Brasseur as le docteur Genassier. um, The film features Pierre Brasseur as le docteur Genassier, the great Alida Valley as Louise, the ethereal Edith Scob as Christian Genassier, François Guérin as Dr. Jacques Vernon, Juliette Meniel as Edna Gruber, 
Alexandre Rinon <laughs> as l'inspecteur Perrault and Béatrice Altariba as local shoplifter Paulette Meroudon. Not to be confused with l'inspecteur Poirot. Or l'inspecteur Gaget. Uh, now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. Eyes Without a Face opened in France on January 11th, 1960, and in the U.S. on October 24th, 1962, where for some reason it was called the Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. Despite not having a Dr. Faust or Satan, uh, it was made for We Have Absolutely No Idea and brought in just over $60,000 worldwide. Critical response was, shall we say, mixed. According to our New York bureau chief, Vic Apadia, Eyes Without a Face caused quite a stir on its release in Europe. The French magazine L'Express uh, said that the audience, quote, dropped like flies during one grisly scene. And during the film showing at the Edinburgh Film Festival, seven audience members fainted, to which director Franju responded, quote, now I know why Scotsmen wear skirts. In England, Isabel Quigley, film critic for The Spectator, called it the sickest film since I started film criticism, while a reviewer who admitted that she liked the film was nearly fired. Um, however, later reviewers were a bit more forgiving. David Edelstein, writing for Slate, commented that the storyline is your standard obsessed mad doctor saga, one step above a poverty robe Bella Lugosi feature, but it's Lugosi by way of Cocteau and UNESCO. Our guy Raj, in a review that accompanied a 35mm release of the film, stated, quote, the matter-of-fact way Franju presents the outrageous is in the tradition of Bunuel, who felt that the only response to the shocking was to refuse to be shocked by it. Eyes Without a Face riveted me with its story, or rather its lack of one. Here is a horror movie in which the shrieks are not by the characters, but by the images. One review from Letterboxd from reviewer PD187, whose review simply states, You won't believe these face swap fails. Number three made me gasp. <laughs> Eyes Without a Face uh, wasn't nominated for any Oscars, nor was it nominated for the Fangoria Chainsaw Award, as Fangoria hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> Now's your opportunity to get hot for teacher, the weekly segment in which we and Van Halen get to find out just why he who assigned the film, which in this case and every case is me, assigned the film. But before we get started, I just want to confirm, Liz, that like me, you also had not seen this film prior to the professor's assignment. 
No, I had not, but I was excited about the assignment because it's been on my to-watch list for years. So this was a great opportunity to get into it. Great. So Le Professeur, uh, please inform us and our listening audience why you chose this film for the Scare You curriculum. Well, I, I guess unlike many of the spookers that we talk about in this hallowed lecture hall here at Scare You, um, Les Yeux Sans Visage is not one that I discovered walking behind the rows at my local VHS rental shop when I was nine. Um, instead, I was shown this for the first time by one Micah Busey, a former New York actor who is now the pastor of Judson Church in Washington Square, uh, when I was somewhere in the post-Vassar but pre-Dramadesk years of my early adulthood. Um, and like a clinical Cocteau film that is an indictment of the French bourgeois society, which can't confront the horror and trauma of its not-too-distant past and is loaded with callbacks to the Nazi occupation. Um, the story of, what, a month in the life of the Genesiers unfolds in almost exactly 90 visually poetic, dreamlike, melodramatic, gothic fairy tale minutes, and it explores the psychology of darkness from a really complex moral point of view. I would say that it continues a clear French literary obsession with the face and the tradition of disfigured and masked heroes and anti-heroes, uh, like those in Dumas' Man in the Iron Mask or Victor Hugo's The Man Who Laughs, and perhaps most directly Gaston LaRue's Phantom of the Opera. And of course, I say most directly because there it ties neatly into cinema. Um, and I think like Wales Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, like Almodovar's The Skin I Live In, um, like Goodnight Mommy, dare I say like The Human Centipede, it traffics in the subjects of science and medicine or their perversion. And I think like those films, Eyes Without a Face concerns itself with ideas of identity and its creation, its recreation and its destruction. Um, Franju said, my goal is always reality and I cross it with tenderness. Violence is not the goal, but a means of achieving it. Violence is the argument. I believe there's nothing but the truth, whether it's beautiful or not, and consequently only the truth matters. Franju once described a medical documentary about trepanning as not a horror film, it was a terror film, which is worse. And what came of his philosophies, crossed with a certain degree of surrealist visual storytelling by way of Bunuel and Dali, caused an uproar and resulted in decades of dismissal, recuts, bad dubs, and worse drive-in pairings before it was ultimately reappraised as a work of horror art. Um, I would say that there's some subtle misdirection at work here that I think would have the full support of, say, a Gretchen McNeil. Um, the story 
is of the obsessive love of a genius father for his only child, whom he has effectively destroyed, and the lengths that he's willing to go to restore her. And it's in following that idea, I think, to its most dangerous extreme that we find the true horror of Eyes Without a Face. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it had me at the first glimpse of Alida Valley as Louise. Um, and I'd seen her in things like Killer Nun. Uh, and of course, in a standout role in Dario DiGiorno Arpeggio Mario Wario's Suspiria uh, in the role of Miss Tanner. When we first see her in this film, through the wet windshield, around two and a half minutes in, Alita Valley could be a slightly zoftig Sarah Paulson in a Ryan Murphy period piece. Um, and, and she evokes Marion Crane from Hitchcock's Psycho, which was released the same year. But when she checks her rearview mirror, it starts to become apparent that Louise and Marion Crane are on opposite sides of the same coin. Each is kind of a distorted, wet windshield version of the other. One is a not exactly innocent victim, and the other is something else entirely. And as Genesier, Pierre Brasseur feels like a more refined Dr. Moreau. His donors, shall we call them, um, seem to be from lower social classes than he is but so are the police. Um, in his walled-in country estate, Genesier is a kind of gentler Dr. Heiter from the human centipede. But this film shows us that the suburbs were no kinder in 1960 than they were in 2009, and that bad things happened in good houses. And I think on the surface, Alita Valley is dangerous, She's got a hard expression and wild eyes and a very purposeful stride. But below the surface, it's Edith Scob that we need to worry about. And Christiane would not look out of place at the Rothschild's famous masquerade or at Truman Capote's black and white ball. Her mask is this object of really strange beauty. It's plaintive and it's expressionless. And it gives her an aspect like that of Garbo at the end of Queen Christina, where we can project any emotion onto it that we as viewers perceive. And in the third act, she describes her own face as if she were describing a mask, feeling like rubber and being hateful to the touch. And, and maskless, she seeks out her transplant and she kind of greedily explores the face on the slab with her hands in this moment that we know in um, 2023 is going to reveal Christiane's true face. And through the sort of ether induced haze, Edna experiences Christiane's in much the same way that Mary Philbin experiences Lon Chaney's unmasked face in the 1925 Phantom of the Opera. And it's made more horrible by being less distinct. 
And in this, Franju is kind of telling us that whatever is behind the mask is more horrible than whatever he can show us. And our imaginations fill in the shadows. And Edith Scob gives a breathtaking performance in this role and a very theatrical one too. And I think that Scob is kind of akin to Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby, Liz. Um, she's this kind of fashionable waif being controlled by the men around her. And I think that aesthetically, this is an incredibly stylish film. It's loaded with really solid visual storytelling and, and that storytelling is deployed via dreamy cinematography. Genesier's secret operating theater is straight out of the Black Cat, which we have talked about here at Scare You. Um, and I think to bring it into a more sort of contemporary frame of reference, that operating theater is is kind of out of Ryan Murphy's American Horror Story season two. Um, I, I think from our vantage point, uh, the performance of the surgery itself, um, which is uh, sort of a, a sort of hallmark moment, uh, you know, a moment that everybody thinks of when they think of eyes without a face, it's probably both more and less brutal than it would have been to an audience in 1960. Because while the doctor is certainly drawing blood and he's slicing up a woman's beautiful face on screen with medical detail, um, he's also doing it without the kind of anesthetized rigor that we now understand is required um, now that face transplantation is uh, becoming more and more real. Um, this is more low-tech Travolta than it is bleeding-edge microsurgery. Um, I think the score of this film is really odd. It feels totally period-appropriate, but perhaps genre mismatched. Um, many films from the 60s, especially um, the stranger, creepier, more esoteric ones, are frequently scored with heavy doses of harpsichord. Um, like in uh, Dead Ringer from 1963 with Betty Davis and Betty Davis, um, the harpsichord is chilling and straightforward and sets us up for kind of a lurid, noirish revenge tale. But here, the opening strains feel a bit comedic. Um, and I think that the first time viewer probably assumes that Larry David is about to, to curb their enthusiasm. Um, but as we go on, the score begins to feel more contrapuntal and ironic than comedic. Um, and I wonder, as I watched it again to prepare for this conversation tonight, was Franju predicting the future here? You know, the first partial face transplant was performed in France by a French plastic surgeon. The techniques used were developed and tested on dogs. Did we know in 1959 about the probability of the human bodies rejecting foreign tissue? Or was he just inspiring legions of future imitators? Because without Christian Genesier and the impassiveness of her blank mask. Would John Carpenter have accessorized Michael Myers with one almost 20 years later? What do you think? Wait, is, is, is that the fire drill? It is the fire drill. It's also your official spoiler warning. Whatever else you do, should you choose to listen further, 
and you have not seen the film, which was made in 1960s, you have no excuse, please stop listening, go watch the film, then come back and listen to the rest of the episode. That's right, it's time for Study Hall, or Study Hell, as I like to call it, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film. Now, we'll be breaking this section up into two segments. Honor roll, i.e. what worked, and detention, i.e. what didn't work. But before things get dicey, I have to ask, to establish where we are on the playing field and just give me a basic yes or no response, did you like this film? Liz? Yes, I did. Eric? Yes, I did. Whoa, all right, then let's get after it. We're going to do honor roll first. We're going to do it round robin style, and we will each name a scene or aspect or attribute that worked best for us, come around for two more, and then hand out some detention slips. So Liz, as our guest, why don't you go first and tell our listening audience what your first designation for the honor roll might be? All right. I'd say my first one, something um, I really loved and I think added to the dreaminess that you talked about and the uncanniness of the film overall, is I noticed the the sound of birds chirping at night throughout the film. Um, and it's, it's just enough that it's, it's not overpowering as some of the other uh, sounds of the movie are, but it's, it's just enough that you notice it and it gives you kind of like a, a discomforting feeling about where you are in time and space. Well said. Um, Mr. Winnick, if you don't mind, before you jump in with your first honor roll nomination, I'm going to piggyback on Liz's and say that I think that there are really thrilling aural moments throughout the entire film. You both remember um, the scene where Genesier goes to identify the um, quote unquote body of his daughter and the three men are walking down a corridor to the salle de reconnaissance to identify that first victim who's been found in the Seine, the victim we've seen Alida Valley throwing in the water in the first five minutes of the film. And the echoing sounds of their heels on the floor is really electrifying and anticipatory um, as the camera movement is becoming sort of more fluid and we're, we're finding these kinds of disembodied environmental interactions where doors are opening on their own without being touched. Um, and the sort of cacophony of the hounds when Dr. Genesier opens the door to the garage for the first time. I really think that the sound design is pretty exquisite in this film. And I'm glad you picked up on that too, Liz. Um, Eric, let's throw it to you. What's your first nomination for the honor roll? Well, I'll just start by saying there was a lot I liked about this film. And so I'm I'm going to try to cram um, maybe more than three things into three paragraphs. So the first designation I have, which is plot and tone. Um, time moves in a very deliberate way in this film. There's short scenes punctuated by blackouts. Um, a relationship between two people plays out over just a few scenes. I'm talking about the quote-unquote grooming of Edna by Louise. Um, you get just what you need to know so that when Edna gets in that car, you understand why. You understand that a relationship, a, a sense of trust, a feeling of trust has been built up. 
also the sense of unease that just lays on top of this film like a heavy blanket. And all of it is delivered so matter-of-factly. There's drama, but it's not overly dramatic. Again, I love the deliberate doling out of information in this film. We wonder what happened to the girl in the car uh, at the beginning, uh, Simone Tessot. What, what happened to her? And then we get it when we see what happens to Edna. In this case, she either fell out of a window or she committed suicide. And we can we can infer that Simone may have met a similar fate. And lastly, I just want to mention that there's a hopefulness and a hopelessness to this film. Um, you're sitting there in the scene where they're having a meal, father, daughter, and Louise. Um, you're happy Bucket of for champagne on ice. Yeah. You're, you're happy for Christiane and her new face, yet at the same time, you're like, wait a minute, let's let's just think for a second about how she got that face and just living with that contradiction. You're like, should I feel good about this? I love a film that puts the audience in that position. Well, I mean, that does speak to the sort of like complex morality of this film. Yeah. Is oh, yeah. Christiane complicit? Right. Mm -hmm. And should we feel bad for her? Should we feel like until the very end in which she sort of exacts her revenge or justice, um, there is a sense of that she is at peace finally with this face. And yet, and yet you're sitting there going like this face is not her own. It was taken not willing, you know, not it was not given willingly. It was stolen from somebody. And it's just it's the sick twisted kind of horrible feeling that you have while enjoying the fact that Christiane actually seems to be happy for the first time in the film. Yeah, of course. And it is those kinds of questions of complicity which contribute to the complexity of the moral universe that Franju has created. Yeah. Let's go back to Liz for honor roll nomination number two. All right. I'd say this is a pretty quick moment that happens maybe two thirds of the way through the film. And it's when Paulette, who is, I guess I'd say the last uh, prospective victim, is at the clinic. She's pretending that she has migraines and the nurse is <laughs> shining a bright light and blinking a bright light in her face which I found a little humorous considering you would never do that with someone with migraines. But then what I really like is the doctor enters the room and the nurse just automatically turns her whole body, including the light on the doctor. And it's almost <laughs> like he's caught for just a, it's comical, but it's also, I thought powerful in a way where he's caught for a minute as like shining light on him. Like you, it's you, you're the criminal here. So I really, I really thought that was both funny and also kind of interesting. Absolutely. Um, Eric, would you like to give us your second nomination for the honor roll? Honor roll nomination numero deux. You know, I'm going to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, which was the the technical elements of this film are all top notch. The black and white photography, especially in the Criterion transfer, which is what I watched, uh, is gorgeous. There are little reminders of the period, but for the most part, this is a film that feels timeless. Um, which lends it that fairy tale quality that you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, earlier as well. Um, also, sound design is so important in this film, especially given how little dialogue there is. I, I love the fact that we don't see the dogs for a while. We just hear them. They just feel like they're omnipresent. And lastly, the sets and the costumes are so sumptuous 
I love Christiane's mask. It it's somehow she still looks beautiful in it. Um, and and that billowy white dress that she wears as she's kind of floating around the house. Um, I'm just going to say that these elements of the film, the ones I've mentioned, are the ones that give it that timeless quality and also make you feel like you're watching a fairy tale. Well said, Mr. Winnick. You also picked up on the on the fairy tale qualities of this because um, you mentioned it earlier. But I just, I, there's something about, especially, I mean, the birds, the release of the birds at the end. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, like Snow White. Yes, and symbolic, you know, the yeah. the the hope and the freedom symbolized by the doves. Yes, that yeah, exactly. It, I don't know. It's there's nothing Disney like about this film, but there's something about her and the animals that just reminded me of sort of classic fairy tale heroines. Absolutely. Heroines. Yeah, uh, and I, I, I'm going to talk about that later in the awards segment as well. But yeah, good, well, good you sh- I think you should. I think you should because now it's time for your honor roll number two. Yes, um, is it deux? numero deux? Numero deux. Okay, thank you. Duh. Um, Duh. Well, this is um, you know I, I I love that we're kind of um, really. Uh, zeroing in on very specific details here because this is a film that's all about detail. Um, And there's something kind of incredible, and this is sort of less a scene perhaps, but more of a concept. Um, Again, this is sort of at the beginning, and we've kind of touched on aspects of this a couple of times, but there's something so perverse about the displacement of the bereavement and the kind of delayed closure from Monsieur Tissot because Genesier is pretending that it's his daughter that he's identified. Um, And I think it's something so unusual and complicated that we wouldn't see in another film uh, that I've certainly never seen in another film. Um, and, and I want to call it out for, for honor roll nomination. As I think you should. Would you like to elaborate on that at all, sir? No, I don't really think I need to, but it's a kind of strange psychological thing that, um, that he does to a grieving father. That's, um, I, like I said, I think it's really perverse yeah. and really horrible. Um, oh, it's horrible. And I, I kind of, it's horrible. I kind of toyed with giving uh, giving that moment my Gaspar Noe award later because it's quite disturbing when it happens. I will say that at the time when the two of them pass and have that conversation, you don't know that it's not his daughter in there. I mean, you don't know yet. So no, it lands later, and it's one of those things uh, to to quote myself that um, you know it, it successive viewings are rewarded with those kinds of details. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say what really adds to the you know the perverse nature and almost the evilness of it is the ease with which he says it. He's very he doesn't seem to have any qualms about misleading this man and you know, not letting his suffering come to an end. So it's, it is pretty astounding. Mm. I think that that moment. And then when you realize what's going on later. 
But yeah. I think we could characterize a lot of what Genesier does in similar terms, don't you, Liz? Yes, I definitely, I, I didn't find him a very sympathetic character, I'll say that for now. <laughs> right, no, I mean, he's very matter-of-fact about nearly everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that kind of compounds the horror of what he's doing. But let's give it back to Liz for honorable numero toi. Thank All you. Right. Uh, well, appropriately, I would say the ending. I loved the ending. And Eric, you touched on this um, a little before as well. I just think her, you know, letting everything be free, including herself. Um, there's a real joy after the struggle that she's had that's so lovely. Um, that's paired with her letting the dogs and the doves loose and almost floating out of the house in her gown. <laughs> yes. um, and it reminded me a little of one of my favorite non-horror movies, which came out maybe, I think, three years before this one did, um, the Italian movie Knights of Cabiria, mm-hmm. um, which also f- features a, a, a woman who, you know, you grow to care for through the movie, who goes through a traumatic event and is determined to make the most of her life. And that's sort of how the movie ends on this powerful note of a woman sort of taking back her life as much as she can. So it really sort of, I I mean, I just recalled that movie when watching this. So I just really loved how she sort of, I mean, I would like to think she's going to do bigger and better things with her life now, although who really, who really knows? Maybe she's wandering straight to jail. But I really thought the, the ending was kind of a beautiful ending for the movie. Beautiful and vague and uncertain and mm-hmm. dreamlike. Right. Very dreamlike, which, I, you know, go lo- goes along with the fairy tale themes, the uncanniness of everything. Yeah. Well said. Um, Eric, honorable numero toi pour vous. Thank you. Um, I have to say one of the things I've come to appreciate about horror, thanks in large part to this um, bastion of higher learning, is how after watching certain films, you sort of do that Leo pointing meme thing where you recognize certain elements that you know will pop up later in other films that are influenced by it. I could obviously mention John Woo's face-off, but that's not really as interesting as a couple of others that come to mind. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of filmmakers were influenced by this film, but, but two that I just want to mention, and one is Jonathan Glazer in Under the Skin. Because of the way that people in that film are also stalked in a car and then seduced in a way to come back to someone's home and then used for nefarious purposes. Um, of course, that film, it's a it's another woman and she's stalking men. Um, but there was something similar about that the the scenes in which Louise is sort of driving around Paris looking for suitable victims. And then the second would be our old friend Pascal Logier. Um, again, not for the obvious reason, slight spoiler here, having to do with skin and flaying, um, but also because there's that same hopeless, sad, tragic quality to martyrs. Um, and also in martyrs, suffering is seen as having a higher purpose. So when the doctor tells Louise to feed poor Edna, and then he'll decide what to do, I got I got this sense that poor Edna was going to be held like that woman in the basement with the metal ring around her head in Martyrs, where she's just going to be left to suffer 
these indignities. And um, there's a hopelessness to that that I felt this film shares with a film like Martyrs. So I appreciate this film and its influences uh, as they would be uh, felt in later films. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate right. you, sir. I appreciate Aww. you. Well, you're welcome. Oh, okay. Um, shall we go to you, sir, for your third and final? Let me bring this to a close. Um, I am going to give my third and final honor roll nomination to the micro moments created by microsurgery. There is a moment during that famous scene where the quivering lips of Edna's face, um, as opposed to Edna's quivering lips, because they're no longer hers exactly, um, Genesier is kind of struggling to fully separate face from figure. And that is an especially subtle and grisly touch. He's got the scalpel. He is working around the underside of her chin and kind of tugs on the face Uh, uh. and the lips (laughs) quiver. And I think Uh. that one little detail is, is ostensibly more shocking than when the entire face is ultimately removed seconds later. Though I'm sure that's the thing that made the patrons faint in 1960. It is that tiny gesture that does it for me. Yeah. I got to say, I did not notice that I will look for it the next time I watch this film, but um, there was a lot of quivering going on in that, in that face. And I don't know if that was, intentional or if it's the the special effect or whatever latex they used you know in that moment but yeah i definitely did not catch that but um a little column a a little column b and a whole lot of shaking going on detention after school both of you you'll receive failing grades on this test seriously excuse me you can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? M- motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. Now, as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Again, Liz, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you think deserves detention? I would have to say it was the music for me. While I liked um, more of the the natural sounds, the animal sounds, things like that, I felt the music was, which you mentioned earlier, um, a little out of place for me. It felt a Mm. little bit too much like a jovial circus of some kind. Um, and it's sort of, there's, I mean, I didn't like it, but it also creates, I think a great moment in the very beginning when we see Louise in the car and this music is playing. And then you look in the back and there's the hat atop the, just jaunty cap atop someone's head. And it's it's sort of a very, I thought a very hilarious moment, but I don't know if it was, it was supposed to be. And I feel like the music made it that way. So I would, I would go for the music for this one. All it needed was a couple of muted trombone moments. 
you know, <laughs> a little slide yeah. whistle, maybe a triangle hit. Can I follow that up? Because I, I just, yeah. I'm, I, I just have to say, uh, yes, Liz, I don't have many negative things to say about this film, but the score of this film by the great Maurice Jarre is so jarring, um, <laughs> especially the, and you, you said it, carnivalesque theme we hear as Luis is driving around. Needless to say, it's similarity to the Curb Your Enthusiasm theme took me, you know, right out of the film, but I should say only for a few moments. Um, so I, you know, it, it reminded me of, of Fellini almost in a way, mm-hmm. um, like eight and a half has some of that kind of hurdy gurdy music in it as well. Um, though that film is obviously very, very different from this. And that film does have a circus like quality, a carnival like quality to it. Um, so it's not a true detention slip, but it's a, it's a semi detention slip. Um, what about you, Mr. Lorick? Well, I do want to say uh, to to both of you that I think we can understand that everything about this film has the filmmaker's fingerprints on it. And so I think we have to infer an intentionality to the music, Um, you know, whether we appreciate it or not. Uh, whether we feel that it is adding to our experience or not. Oh, sure. Do you know? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, yes, okay. absolutely. Um, I totally recognize that it was Franju's choice, but it's it's a, it's an odd choice. Let's just, let's yes. just say that. Uh, I have one singular detention slip for this film, and I'm going to say that there is definitely a shot in the last moments in which a dove has shat on Edith Scobe's arm. No, no, no. I did not Come know on. that. What? I, I will send a screen cap to both of you after we've concluded. <laughs> oh, I don't but know if I want to see that. Tr- <laughs> in, in trying to create this image of sort of fractured and delicate, painful beauty, did mm-hmm. they have no better coverage of that moment? I mean, uh, asking you know. for a friend. You know, come on, Franju. Yeah, I mean, no, here I am. Absolutely. Giving him credit for every choice that has happened in the entire film. I mean, is it really? I mean, is that a statement? Is the statement that, uh, you know, the subtle statement that life has shat on, uh, okay. on Christiane, even in giving her this um, transcendent moment of freedom as she floats off you know, like Glinda into the forest at the end, you know? It would be nice to think that that there was some intentionality there. Are you sure it wasn't just like a ruffle? I mean, she was wearing like a white dress at that point. Uh, you know, <sighs> when we pause, it, when we okay, pause, all right. I'm going to pull yes. that screenshot or screenshot, okay, all right. as it were. <laughs> oh, really well done, sir. Well but, um, said. Um, um, okay, back Huge to you. Huge Jar's um, score. Liz, what's your second detention slip, if you have one? Um, yeah, I didn't have I didn't have many, so I'd say this is maybe like half a detention slip. Um, but there was a little part of me that sort of, I, I guess because I, I disliked the doctor character and I wanted more 
focus on the women in the movie. Um, and I, d- I don't think that's logical because then it would have been like a two and a half hour movie. But I was like, how did how did she end up being lured so easily? How did how did this happen? Like, what was her relationship like with her fiance? I got all these questions, but it was more they were he was he was sort of the center of the orbit. They were moving around for most of the film. Um, and I didn't love him. So I think he because a character irritated me, I kind of wanted less of a focus on him and more of a focus on the other characters. Interesting. So definitely the character, not the portrayal. Right. I thought I I liked his acting, even though I thought it was a bit melodramatic. But I think that went with the vibe of the movie. Like, I think that was purposeful. Um, It was just he was I don't know. He was he was too much for me. And I couldn't I I feel like he was just very controlling. Um, Oh, yeah. Which was pointed out and also had Louise kind of under his thumb in this very strange way, like her debt to him because he, quote unquote, fixed her. Um, so I think yes. that, yeah, that was kind of it. I didn't really love his character. Well, Bradford, you pointed out that the choker that she wears is something like a dog collar. Um, mm-hmm. I did not pick up on that. Um, that's an interesting point, an interesting way to to view Louise as this kind of, you know, um, gopher, really, you know, that sort of goes out and procures things for, for the doctor. It's hard to say that this film is really from one character's point of view. It's it's not. I mean, it, it shifts mm-hmm. around. It, you see Louise by herself. You see Christiane by herself. You see Genesier by himself. Um, but it would have been interesting to if the film had been from, say, Christiane's perspective, and we sort of saw everything, as it were, through her eyes. I think it might also be worth pointing out, or, or underlining this, that yes. this is... At the end of the day, no matter how well executed, no matter how beautifully made it is, Mm -hmm. it's a scary movie about a mad doctor. Yeah. And Louise is the Igor to Je ne sais Dr. Frankenstein. It might also be worth pointing out that in, you know, that this film is an adaptation of a book, which was freely adapted in its translation to the screen. And the doctor was much more a, um, a stereotype of a mad scientist with a male assistant who does oh, yeah. things like um, rape the drugged transplant oh, donors. Yeah in the story. And so I think there's Uh also something um, that elevates the story about turning that role into Louise and creating this complex um, symbiosis between them. Um, And so, you know, that, that in the creation of this as, I mean, a, a kind of feminist statement uh, that is fascinating. Are you saying it's feminist because it gives sort of Louise agency and makes her uh, in a sense? I mean, again, I think you know the I you know I've said it a handful of times and I'm going to repeat it again that the the moral universe that Franju has created is fraught and complex and it's not yeah. easily untangled. And so there is this sense of loyalty, this sense of paying back the service that, that Genesier has mm-hmm. done for Louise. 
Um, I mean, there are people out there who think that Louise is actually the quote unquote dead wife of Genesier and um, Christiane's mother. Um, mm. You know, uh, because there, there are many questions about from where Louise comes, why she has this relationship to Genesier, right. why he was fixing her face. Um, you know, was there some thing that occurred that, um, that, that you know, it, it's kind of said that Louise's transplant worked because she had more of a face to begin with. Is she actually the wife of Genesier? Was in she the in the car crash? where she was in right. the same car I mean, wreck that hurt Christiane. Yeah. yeah I wonder there's that, so I yeah. there are so many questions that are unanswered, so many scenarios that are kind of set up but not truly or fully explored. I mean as as Liz was pointing about, uh, out about um Edna's backstory and her relationship to Louise and why, you know, she was so um comfortable getting into the car and going, uh, you know, leaving Paris to go to the countryside. There are uh, are details of these relationships that are um are are merely hinted at and unexplored or questions left unanswered intentionally by the filmmakers, you know? But I would go back to Liz on this one and just say that, you know, given Louise's role in this film, you still feel that they're that the women in this film are not are given sort of short shrift. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I love that context, Bradford, especially knowing that it was uh updated significantly from the book. And I did enjoy like some of the scenes that I thought were very sweet, even though they were a little demented were um, <laughs> Louise and Christian like together. And cause she does take on that maternal role, whether or not she's yes. right. exactly. yes. her mom. Those were nice. And I feel like the chemistry between the two of them worked really well for those moments, especially as Christian was so distraught and Louise was so comforting to her as much as she could comfort someone in that situation. Yeah, I still I still feel like I would want to know more about those characters, right. but I also think to make the movie work, I also wouldn't want this to be a longer movie. Like I think it was it worked sure. in pretty perfectly at 90 minutes. And yeah. so it's it's and again, it's like half a detention slip because I I do feel like it was still great, but I th- I think I would have wanted more of the just a, like a little background to make them a little less flat, I guess, cuz especially, you know, the victims, they're all they're all these brunettes with blue eyes who are all sort of the same, very similar. Um, so they don't stand out much from each other, um, which is maybe sort of the point, but I would like to see a little a little more fleshed out descriptions of even like Christian's relationship with her fiance, which seems just this very sad, sweet relationship that who knows what'll happen in the future with the two of them. And and to know a little bit more about the girl in the end, other than that, she's a shoplifter. Mm-hmm. I, I guess a couple of things. You know, I mean, with um, with the relationship between Christiana and Jacques, you know, I mean, he, he works with Genesier, Doctor Genesier. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so one one wonders. I mean, was the was the father behind the sort of creation of that relationship? How much is he truly controlling his child, his girl child? Exactly. You know? Right. Um, and then also, you know, the, there is something, I think, to say about uh, Franju's having made documentaries about the style in which this story is told and about the kind of omniscience of the camera 
in the in the telling of the story. You know, when we're talking about point of view or from whose perspective the story is told, I think that there is a certain kind of omniscience that comes from a, um, uh, or, or if not omniscience of the camera, then a subjectivity of the camera, which can be kind of disconnected from the personalities of the characters, which I think is interesting in how one kind of unpacks this story. Yeah, it's no one character's story. It's all of their stories. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Let's throw it back to Eric for uh, his second detention slip. Yeah. And again, it's not really a detention slip. It's a question. And you guys, please help me out with this. Is it ever stated just what Genesier is doing with the dogs besides being a you know complete asshole to them. I thought at one point it looked when they showed the dog on the table. I thought he was yeah. testing skin transplants on them, but and then yes, like it seemed like he was collecting them from people who were sick of taking care of elderly dogs, which is very yeah. sad. And then he was testing skin transplants. That was the impression I got. He is um re- he's relieving the dog catcher of his fines. Uh, mm-hmm. And there is a moment in which we see a German shepherd on an operating table with his side shaved. Oh, uh, and I okay, think it okay. Is to be understood that the dogs are test subjects for uh, for Genesier's radical surgeries. Okay, because I just saw him kind of palpating the side of the dog. Um, I I didn't actually wasn't sure if it was like a shaved portion of the dog. Um, so I, I wasn't entirely clear what was going on. Um, but thank you for enlightening me. I Here at Dr. Genesier's migraine clinic and dog grooming yes. center. <laughs> yes, right. Dr. Genesier no, Qua. Dr. All right, Genesier so- Qua. Liz, do you have a third? No, I really, I there was very little to dislike, I felt. So I only had those two. And um, Eric, do I, you I, have a third? Yeah. So I didn't love that we don't know what becomes of Christiane in the end of the film. I appreciate that justice is served. And it's definitely got that fairy tale quality to it as she just wanders off into the night. But there is something somewhat unsatisfying about it. You get the sense that she's never going to reunite with Jacques. She's never going to have a normal life. For all we know, she may kill herself. I mean, she has spoken of it. Will she turn herself in? I don't know. But it is a very vague ending, as has been said tonight. And there was something about it. Like, I almost wanted one or two little bits of information just to give me a sense. I don't need all of it. But if I just knew that something, like there was some, she was headed in some direction, there was some intentionality to her leaving, uh, besides just getting the hell out of there, it would have left me with a, a more complete feeling somehow. And I, I don't know if you guys agree or disagree with that, but there's just something about the vagueness of the end that that kind of bugged me. I really, I think I said this earlier, but I really love a, a vague ending. So I kind of, mm-hmm. I kind of enjoyed that. But I yeah. also see what you're saying. And I did think, because I watched the film a couple days before this episode taping, and then I watched it earlier today as well, just to refresh myself. And I did notice the second time around at the end, even though I, I love the end, as I talked about earlier, that there is this kind of, kind of more frantic, nervous 
spooky music that ramps up at the end that made me think, mm-hmm. oh, she's not on to bigger and better things as I want to believe. No. Um, I mean, I still liked it. I like that uncertainty at the end of a, a movie, even though it can you right. know, drive you a bit crazy. But I that was one of the things I actually liked about it. But I understand how, especially with like just so much is unsettled, like and she seems like a very unsettled person at this point with all the trauma she's been through. So it's a little a little hard to know what she's going to do next. And I guess that's a good thing if a film has you asking that question. I, you know, I wonder if the filmmakers knew or if it even matters. Well, Eric, how does a dream end? Almost abruptly sometimes, I would say, you know, with no resolution. And I think right? that there is a dreamlike quality to so much that happens sure. in this film. That yeah, I no, you're am, right. I'm, I'm okay with it ending in the way that it ends. But at the end of the day, Eric, you have yes. to remember, it's her father's house in her father's name. And you can't beat go. father at father's game. All right, before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess, get some air into our lungs, run around a bit, maybe have a snack or two. Uh, Liz, growing up, did you have a favorite school time snack? Yeah, you know, I was pretty partial to mozzarella sticks, I think was a snack I'd have in my backpack. Um, those little polio ones wrapped in plastic, not very oh my healthy, God. but quite delicious. It just so happens that another guest this season, oh. uh, Jason Regusta, is also a huge fan of polio string cheese, but he also threw Lunchables into his snack. So it's sort of a combo. Oh, okay. I was never a and Lunchables ha- person, but I did love those cheese did- sticks. How did Regusta describe Lunchables? It was like shitty charcuterie oh. or something like that. It was like a it's like a mini kids charcuterie tray. Yes. Yes. I'm thrilled that you clarified because here I was sitting here thinking about you pulling some like cold deep fried mozzarella sticks. <laughs> I was thinking that a, too. Out of a greasy backpack, a greasy Lisa <laughs> Frank <laughs> unicorn backpack. I also thought she had like a deep fryer that she carried with her. <laughs> Always bring that Just deep fryer to school. It's the first thing. Wheeling around the deep fryer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's take a break and we will come back for the superlatives. everyone's concerned you're the most popular girl in your school and the fact that you hang with d and i well he speaks very highly of you well he's very popular and cools nerds your side my side man it's all bullshit it's just tough enough to be yourself so is this your first time out here yeah i don't think i'm very popular out here either hey i met you you are not cool. There are people I work with and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. It's time now to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character, that most deserve to die. So to start us off, let's do the first award. That's the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene, named for Gaspar Noe. No need to explain who that is to Liz DiGregorio. She knows exactly who Gaspar (laughs) Noe is. Uh, But for those who don't know, he, of course, is the uh, beloved director of such family films as Irreversible, Love 3D, Enter the Void, Climax, and 
Radford's favorite Lux Eterna, the greatest Yves Saint Laurent ad ever produced. (laughs) Starring uh, your friend and mine, Beatrice Dahl. Sir, what do you have? There's a really strange moment. It is when Paulette is on the operating table and Genesier is disturbed in the surgery. Oh, yeah. By the arrival of the two police officers. And he exits the scene and the camera pans over to reveal Christiane. Oh. Looking her most doll-like. She's in a Mm -hmm. cloud of lace and crinoline. She is coiled up like a watch spring on a recamier, which has not previously been present in the operating theater. And she is her most fragile, her most unstable, but somehow her most self-possessed. And she has the greatest agency that we have yet seen her demonstrate. And she picks up the scalpel. We are unsure of what she's going to do with it, how she's going to wield it. And then we find that Mm -hmm. it is the tool that she will use to achieve freedom and to set in motion the events that are going to bring the film rapidly to its conclusion. And it is purely that reveal that gets my Gaspar Noe award for most disturbing scene. Interesting. Okay, Liz, what do you have? Uh, This is the Gaspar Noe award for most disturbing scene. For me, it's the scene when we first see Edna walk into the house um, after their long, long car ride, her and Louise driving up to this house, this mansion. Um, She hears the barking dogs and you can see she's getting quite unsettled. She sees the doctor standing there very stone-faced. And as the audience, we can see that she knows something is off, but she's trying to keep it together. And the hardest part and the most disturbing part for me was to watch her trying to be polite and sitting in the the very ornate fancy parlor with the doctor and Louise when we can tell that she knows she's in danger, but she just doesn't really know what to do about it. So you know and she knows that something bad is about to happen but there's no way around it. So just sort of waiting for that that moment where he eventually chloroforms her to happen is just I, that was the most disturbing scene for me. Yeah, you you definitely know that that that's it's going in a in a not so great direction. That's a good one. I'm going to uh, be utterly predictable and say it it has to be the surgery scene for me. I mean, I I almost was kind of thinking there might be a trifecta on this one, but I guess not. Um, I will say that even though I already knew the scene was coming and I'd seen an excerpt from it, damn it, because I've watched one of those stupid, most disturbing moments in cinema YouTube videos at some point, um, I can't imagine how audiences in 1960 reacted to that scene. I mean, it still has the power to unsettle you. Um, obviously not just that scene, but especially that scene for me. So, Oh, please, Winnick. I've seen botched. I know. Let's move to the next award, which is the Ellen Ripley Award for character that most deserved to live. Of course, Ellen Ripley, the, uh, the hero of the Alien Cinematic Universe, played by Sigourney Weaver. So I'm going to ask Liz to start us off with this one. Liz, 
who gets your Ellen Ripley Award for character that most deserved to live? For me, this one would be Christiane. I thought her moral compass at the end came through. Um, and essentially from the moment that you were talking about Bradford, where she sort of comes alive and starts showing agency um, and eventually frees Paulette, uh, seeing her free Paulette, then exact some acts of revenge, um, release the animals. I found that very moving and watching her free herself um, was a good moment since I feel like she really did suffer. And it was it was nice to see her sort of take off on her own path. Although, as we discussed, we don't really know what her future will hold. All right. There you go. All right, Mr. Lorick. Ellen Ripley. Edna. Interesting. Somehow. Why Edna? In, in, well, I think in, in her sort of gauze mask and her boucle dress, post-surgery, she's less destabilizing than the image of Christiane in her beautiful silk housecoat and the replica face that she wears. She's sort of oh, yeah. earthier. She's sturdier. She's stronger internally and externally. We're kind of rooting for Edna. And I just feel like the the mise-en-scene of her sort of non-escape escape feels especially punishing, especially brutal, especially unfair for her. Um, I, I thought that she was going to get away. I thought the first time I saw it that she was going to sort of be the instrument of the undoing of Genesier and what is going on in his chateau. Uh, and I really wanted Edna to somehow pull through. Interesting. So Dame Edna you're going with. So Dame Edna. And what about you, Mr. Winnick? Uh, I'm going to agree with Liz. It's Christiane all the way. Poor kid. Face ruined in a car crash due to her father's reckless driving. Now she's got to go through multiple rounds of tissue rejection. Felt terrible for her, but in the end, she is kind of the hero of this film. Yes, uncertain ending. We don't know where she's going, where she's going to end up, whether she's going to live or not, or be incarcerated or who knows? But um, I agree. I, I think it's Christiane. So um, moving on to the next award is, of course, the Michael Myers Award for the character that most deserved to die. Uh, and of course, Michael Myers, Bradford Lork. Uh, what, what do we what do we have to say about Michael? He's um, he's the he's hero. the antihero of he's the hero of John Waters. <sighs> John Waters. <laughs> imagine if John Waters had directed Halloween. Uh, I imagine it every night when I'm asleep and dreaming. Of Divine course, as Laurie Strode. That I want to see right now. So um, Michael Myers, of course, is the uh, the the villain of John Carpenter's seminal 1978 classic, Halloween. He is the shape. He is the uh, evil that lurks within men's hearts. He is the personification of the boogeyman. I will start us off with this. I'm going with Louise. Yes, uh, there is kind of a snidely whiplash quality to her, but I loved how villainous Alita Valley is um, with her pearl choker hiding her scar, kind of like Blofeld, you know, in the Bond films and her willingness to do anything for Genesier. She bad. Would you say that she brings a certain Genesier quoi to the proceedings? 
<laughs> I, I would. I would. And also, Mr. Winnick, was was Blofeld not, in fact, played by Donald Pleasance? With a scar, yes, in You Only With Live a scar? Twice. Donald Pleasance, you know, the actor who played Dr. Loomis. Dr. Loomis, yes. Oh, in John perfect. Carpenter's seminal 1978 Halloween. So perfect. So We're perfect. Just knitting and purling this all together. We sure are. All right, Liz, uh, Michael Myers Award, what do you have? All right. For me, this would be Dr. Giancier, Um, and he did die, which I was not unhappy about. Um, <laughs> In I mean, a spectacular just, way. Right. Very shocking to me. But, um, you know, I feel like he deserved it. I feel like, you know, they mentioned a couple of times how controlling he is. Christian says he has to control everything and indicates that he was responsible for the car crash that destroyed her face. Um, and there's this great, <laughs> this is great scene sort of towards maybe halfway through where she briefly has her, her face transplanted correctly and he tells her to smile and then he tells her to smile again and then he tells her, but not too much. Um, And I just, I just thought that was like a really great moment that encapsulated why I don't like him and why I was totally okay with him dying in this movie. Come on, smile just a little bit. Give me a smile. (laughs) To be fair, he didn't want it to roll up like a comic... (laughs) Oh, window shade point. you know he didn't, he didn't want the whole face to peel off like you know in a tom and jerry cartoon <laughs> those um <laughs> snapshots that that's the one part of this film that felt very documentary like to me is when when he starts going through the rejection of the the, t- the the tissue um through the still photos that you see like one after another as it's getting worse and worse mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, Eric. I'm glad that the, the, that you? sequence came up in conversation tonight. Yes, I think that's Are a you? great. Mo- I think it's a. I think it's a fantastic moment. I think it it sort of um, is the sort of definition of clinical horror that kind of suffuses this film. Um, and I'm glad that someone brought it up. All right. Well, you know what? Speaking of beautiful things, you have a Michael Myers Award to give out, sir, and we'd love to hear it. Well, I think I'm going to be going in a sort of unpopular direction here with my Michael Myers oh, Award no. tonight. It's poor Christiane who most what? deserved to die. I mean, she Whoa. begs for death. She's been traumatized. She has been... Does I, she deserve I mean, it? I think I'm defining deserve as in, in thinking about what the future holds for her. Thinking about the captivity in which she's been held, that she's been treated like a living dead doll. Should we give her the sweet release that she yearns for? I, I mean, what what kind of life can she have? I think perhaps Christiane deserves it most in, you know, not in a in in a punishing way, but in the way that it's it's kind of giving her the release that she desires. I, you know, I, I don't know. It's a it's an interesting choice. I think we should leave it there. I will we'll let our, our listeners marinate on that one a little bit as we move to the Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment. Um, and this is a, a, an award Bradford and I love to give out because we do love us some Ken Russell, director, of course, of The Devils, Altered States, uh, The Boyfriend, Lishtomania, Tommy, 
Lair of the White Worm, Crimes Salome's of Passion, Last Dance, Gothic, Whore, Whore, Take the Money, Whore, with Teresa Russell. Um, so this is the, for the most Baroque screen moment, which we like to jokingly say is the moment the director decides to go for Baroque. Indeed. Um, so, Mr. Lorick, I would like you to start us off on this one. What gets your Ken Russell Award for Baroque screen moment? I mean, it's the whole of the conclusion of the film. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, for, you know, Christiane clearly equates herself to the dogs that her father experiments on. In the end, she frees the dogs, which seem to love her, and that then get revenge on the captor who's been experimenting on them too. They tear him apart. They eat away at his own face. Um, her, Her imprisonment is also kind of mirrored by the caged doves. She opens the cage. She frees them. And then she's sort of lyrically walking out into the dark, into the future. It's this kind of classical tableau of kind of beauty and peace and freedom, but it's kind of ruined and and perverted. I mean, the whole thing is just this kind of Baroque experiment in, in kind of topping itself with more symbolism, more illusion, more revenge more uh triumph over adversity it just keeps compounding and compounding and compounding itself so that last moment really just gets the ken russell award for most baroque screen moment for me with the cherry on the cake of course being the dove that shits on the arm of poor christian jeez <laughs> all right um so after all of that uh i'm gonna just follow that up with one word Ditto. Liz, what do you have for the Ken Russell Award? Mine also is a bit of overlap, I would say. I feel like a lot of the design and the way everything is so ornate, but there's there's like a like a real filthiness kind of underneath it because you don't know where he's getting his money. You kind of know that he's not, and I'm talking about the doctor here, sorry. Um, so the doctor, you don't know where he's getting his money from these kind of dubious medical things he's doing. So it it just feels like there's, you know, such beauty, but mixed with such kind of grotesqueness. And I also really wanted to call out the painting that you mentioned of her with the dove and just, you know, having that echo throughout the film and then come up again in the end. So I just feel like the 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 kind of beautiful but broken like scene in which they're living would be my choice uh, so right. is there is that one particular scene i just want to make sure no, I, I feel understand. like i cheated a little but i just feel like the the whole the way the house is treated the way the visuals are and how there's uh-huh. that contrast like the heavy contrast between kind of the purity and kind of the underbelly of what's really going on there I see. So, okay. So sort of the, the house itself is mm-hmm. sort of a Baroque, has a Baroque quality to it. Okay. Um, the the very... absence of Clorox in the operating room. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right. So this, in fact, does bring us to our final award of the night, which is the Brad Dourif Award for character that could or should have been played by the great Brad 
Dorif. I actually would love Liz to go first on this one. Liz, do you have an award? Yeah, I thought uh, not to re- not to repeat recipients here, but uh, again, I thought the doctor. The doctor receives this award for me. I think I would have liked him more or enjoyed the character more if he had been played by Dorif. Interesting. That's interesting. Right. Um, very good, Bradford Lorick. Doctor Genesee. Uh-huh. Full stop. Wow. See, that's interesting because we are not going to have a a trifecta tonight, but that's okay. Opinions are good things. Um, I'm giving it to Louise. As much as I love Alita Valley in this film, I I still think Brad Dourif would have been a a, a fabulous uh, Louise. Um, He just has such a, a sidekick quality sort of the igor as you as you put it and with that we have arrived at our final segment of the night the final exam this of course is the part of our program where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything that we have heard and seen about this film liz would you like to go first and give us the final letter grade for eyes without a face yes i would i would grade this as a b plus all right, I'm surprised. I thought you might come in a little higher, but let's give it to Mr. Winnick. What is your final letter grade for uh, Les Yeux Sans Visage? Well, sir, I'm going to make you very happy because I'm finally going to break that threshold tonight. I am giving Eyes Without a Face an A minus. Whoa, Eric, this is monumental. I freaking love this film. I am thrilled to hear it. I'm going to uh, do you I... one better. Go ahead. Go for because it. Because my, my friend Pauline Kale and I are of similar minds about Les Yeux Sans Visage, and I am going to give this an A+. Wow. Going all the way with it. All Excellent. the way, baby. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this very special episode. And if you do, if you did, tell your friends, share our episodes on that series of pneumatic tubes called the internet, have a listening party, bring a Lisa Frank backpack full of greasy mozzarella sticks. Hey, (laughs) maybe even subscribe. disgusting and while you're at it give us a five-star rating on apple podcast because god damn it we deserve it be sure to check out additional information on our instagram account in our facebook group or on our website scareyoupod.com thanks again to our guest liz de gregorio liz if people want to find you and your work online where can they do so i'm on blue sky and twitter at liz de gregorio Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This was great, and I feel like I learned a ton. Awesome. Well, that's what it's all about here at Scare You. Uh, meanwhile, you can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram under the moniker E.A. Winnick. And you can find me at BradfordLorick.com. Our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Wyatt Olaf, and Sophia Lillis. Our music is by Van Halen Edward Elgar, and Sir Cubworth. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time in the cold, clinical, operating theater that we like to call... 